0: So, we're going to close out this ser- series called Destination Marriage. Please, first, take out your bulletins if you're in house with us today, because in the bulletins, we handed you a book today. Did anybody notice it's book level today? There's tons of uh, material about compassion. Good news about compassion uh, is we are doing the compassion experience here on our property in two weeks. Now, this is going to do something to us with parking. It's going to really mess with us with parking. So we're getting permission from our neighbors to park at their parking lots, and hopefully we're going to tram you in uh, that weekend. So that's not next week. That's two weekends from now. Just be ready for that, and don't let it stop you from coming to church that weekend. We have a special guest from Uganda who's coming uh, that went through the Compassion program. She is a graduate. Can't wait for you to hear her story. And then be ready with Cheryl and I to sponsor a child. Uh, Also, real big bonus for us, Water Church, here's what we're doing. We are actually uh, paying uh, or providing the funds necessary for Compassion to start an entirely new village uh, in a location they've never been to before in the country of Uganda. That investment is about $25,000. And we are already, with the money in hand, able to give that to Compassion without asking you for a special offering. Do you know why? Because we tithe 10% of whatever comes in, and so we store up a little bit for big opportunities like this. And I love that fact that we're a generous church because of your generosity, and I think it's so cool that we can just say, hey, Compassion, we'll pick up another village, and here's $25,000, no questions asked. How many believe that's good? I love the opportunity to be generous. Now, the Compassion Experience is uh, going to take about 50 spots, 50 parking spots away from us, and you get the chance to walk through the village like you would if you were overseas. Only you don't have to pay for a $2,500 plane ticket. How many know that's a good deal? Register online if you want to go through the pro- if you want to go through the experience. You've got to register, and that is at compassionexperience.com. Pre-register to experience it. And please don't register to experience it during service times. It's going to be here from Friday through Monday of that weekend. So the week after Memorial Day, Friday through Monday, and just come in and check it out for yourself. It'll be really powerful and moving for you, and that weekend will be amazing. Okay, also, um, bad news for Winsocket. just letting you know, Uh, the building that we had signed a um, letter of intent on, they actually, the owners, sold the building out from under us. Yeah, this is this is um, unfortunate. And so we're a bit discouraged, uh, but we are not without hope, and we are not giving up hope. It's okay to get discouraged. It's not okay to stay discouraged. So we're believing that this is God's proper no. That's going to lead us to God's perfect yes. Can I get a better amen than that? Yeah, God has... A perfect home for Woonsocket. The good news is because again of your generosity with Above and Beyond, not only is our roof going on next week and the week after on this building paid for in full, hallelujah, but we have over $100,000 ready to go for a building renovation in Woonsocket or for our Woonsocket campus. So we are ready. And I think that that's a good place to be, ready for whatever door God opens. So many times in our history, we have seen God do- open a door, and we weren't ready. Now we're ready, and God's just going to open the door. And in this building, I want to remind you that there were several times I had to get up on the stage and say, that place fell through, that land fell through, that building fell through, and all of you were just like, at the end, I just stopped telling you that we had any building in mind. <laughs> and then I got up one week, and I said, we got a purchase and sale, and we just put the money down, and that was the end. And so lots of no's, in this building, in this church, led to the right yes in this building. So we're believing that for one socket too. Amen. Okay, destination marriage, part four. Fight for the family. Fight for the family. Any family is worth fighting for. Can I get a good amen? Your family will either be the greatest blessing in your life or the greatest trouble in your life. And I believe that you, as a child of God, have an opportunity to make it a blessing. But it's not going to happen without some fight. It's not going to happen without some effort. So take out your bulletins again, because in the bulletins we've got the notes page. Why don't you fill in the blanks with us? And then we're going to go to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30 in just a few moments and look at David's life and how he fought for his family. Um. I have enjoyed this series, teaching on marriage, teaching on family, I've uh, enjoyed being up here with my wife these last two weekends, and I trust that you have appreciated her input. Yeah. I. To be honest, I feel a little lonely up here today. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Compassionate crowd. Um, No, I I really don't. Uh, But... (laughs) What happens every time I plan a marriage or family series in my home, like three weeks, you could put it on the calendar, three weeks before the series starts, all hell breaks loose in my own house and in my own marriage. Like leading up to destination marriage is every time, and I've done several series about marriage over the years, every time Cheryl and I just start Yapping at each other, just start hating on each other, just start arguing about scuba little things. And like we were on the way to the law lawyer's office this time, <laughs> okay? We really weren't, but you know, it was just for effect, right? Okay, but we were like at each other's throats, and I knew it. I just said, This is what happens every time we plan a series on marriage, our marriage is about to crumble. Why does that happen? You know why that happens because we have a spiritual enemy. And the moment that we forget that we have a spiritual enemy is the moment we are sitting ducks for his attacks. And the same enemy that's coming at my marriage is coming after yours or your family's or your parenthood or your childhood or your singlehood. And you've got to be aware that you are in a fight for your family. And I want you to be well-equipped by the end of this message. I want you to be well-equipped on how to fight well for your family. See, it's not, an, it's not a coincidence that as soon as Paul is done talking about marriage and family in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, which is where we've been in this series. Remember last week we left off at Ephesians 6, 4 about fathers raising their children. It's not a coincidence that as soon as Paul is done talking about the roles of the house and the roles of children, the roles of parents, the roles of wives and husbands, that he immediately turns the page in Ephesians chapter 6 and talks about spiritual warfare. You ever think about this? He turns from parenthood, childhood, and then employees and employers, and then he goes, okay, now, I want you to be aware of something, Ephesians 6, 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So, big point, your husband is not the problem and he's not your enemy. Your wife is not the problem and she's not your enemy. Your kids are not the problem, your parents are not the problem, your neighborhood is not the problem. We do not wrestle against humans. We wrestle against real forces in the heavenly places in the cosmic powers of the present darkness that are coming after God's people. And we need to be aware. But there is a spiritual fight going on. Therefore, verse 13, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand in the day of evil and having done all, you might be able to stand firm. In other words, you wanna get the order right in your family, great. But if you're not prepared to fight for it spiritually, all the knowledge of what you should do with your family will not make a bit of difference. You can have all the principles, all the teaching, all the truth, All the Bible you want, but if you don't fight in the spirit realm, you're going to lose. And so many of God's people, especially in America, especially here in this country, especially in New England, so often we forget that there is a spiritual enemy that is coming after us with lies and deception and deceit, and he wants to trap us into his program for our lives. And I don't want him to win, and I know you don't want him to win. And I believe the Bible is true when it says that he's already defeated, that the cross put him down once and forever, that he has no physical power over us, that the cross once and for all, all time has nailed to the wall the devil's authority over us and he is a defeated foe but he's still lying and yapping at us and we need to take authority in Jesus name to put him right back in his place and live the life God wants us to live come on somebody so we got to fight we got to fight well for our families we got to fight for our children we have to fight for our marriages and i want you to fight well i want to talk about david david was a man who knew how to fight David you might not know this we know more about David's life than anybody else's life in the entire Old Testament we know about his teenage years when he defeated Goliath we know about his mid 20s when he became a servant of Saul and played the harp for Saul while the spirits troubled Saul's spirit and we watch him grow and become a mighty warrior and then we we watch him struggle A lot of people think that David's life ends with triumph over Goliath. How many know that's just the beginning? And as soon as he beat Goliath, his boss, Saul, was immediately intimidated by him and then started to try to kill him, threw some spears at the boy, chucked a couple of chairs at him, tried to kill him because he was intimidated. The people were singing songs in in the nation. They were singing songs about how much stronger David was than Saul. And the girls would gather around, they would sing a song. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. It's like an American, you can even just like make it a rhythmic song in English. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens, come on, on. Saul has killed his thousands, and David, you stink, okay. (laughs) So Saul does not like this, and he chases David down. And he's trying to kill him, and he runs from Saul for seven years. For seven years, he's got to run into caves and hide. He has to run into the wilderness and hide. He's chased out of his own life, his own family. Here is a man who not only was rejected by his family, but by his boss, by his country, by his fellow soldiers. And he felt pain. And what I love about David is that we don't just get to watch what happened to David in the scriptures. We also get to find out how David felt about what happened to him in the scriptures because he writes most of the Psalms. And in the Psalms, David is writing He's writing about the sadness that he experienced because of the turmoil that he went through. And if you ever read the Psalms of David, it's like you think that the boy is literally bipolar. Like you think he's got a, a personality disorder. Because there's moments where, where David is like, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Oh, birds are chirping. The sun is shining. la, la, la. And then there's another somewhere where he's like, God, where are you? I pray all the time and I'm drinking my own tears for heaven's sakes and you answer me not. How many love the fact that David was honest about how he felt about his walk with Jesus? How many know that? That's a good thing for us. Because he's honest and it's helpful to have somebody to relate to. I can't relate to sanctimonious Christians who pretend like they never have any problems. Anybody with me? I can't relate to that. I need somebody to tell me that they struggle too. That makes me feel stronger in my struggle when I know that I'm not the only one that's struggling in that area. David is struggling, and he's fighting, and he's running, and he's hiding. And there comes a time in 1 Samuel chapter 28 where David actually has to run into the enemy's camp and join up with the Philistines just to escape Saul's death threats. He has to join the enemies of Israel to avoid the king of Israel. That's how bad it got. And then war breaks out between uh, the Philistines and Israel, and the Philistines on the way into battle say to David, we think you're going to turn on us in battle to gain Saul's favor. You got to go. And now David has not just been rejected by his father, by his boss, by his countrymen, by his fellow soldiers. He's also now been even rejected by his enemies. And uh, suffering that rejection, he heads back home to his present home at that time called Ziklag. And I want you to get that in your mind. This is where David is. This is where we are in the narrative of David's story. And this is what happens when he returns home after being rejected by even the enemies of Israel. Would you stand with me as we read from this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag, David's home, and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken Captive. Somebody say captive. Then David and all the people who were with him raised their voices and wept. Check this out. Until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken. Verse six. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself and the Lord is God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? In other words, do you want me to fight for my family? And God says to him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. So David set out. Skip all the way down to verse 16. We'll cover those middle verses later. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking, because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of Judah, verse 17, and David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man escaped except for 400 men who mounted camels and fled. David, verse 18, recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that the next few moments are governed by the Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For the person here who is at the end of their rope, I pray that today they find strength in you. For the person who is here and maybe even outside of the Christian faith, I pray that they see the glory of Christ and the strength that he offers. And I ask that all of us will see Jesus and him only in his mighty name I pray. And everybody said amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. First Samuel chapter 30 for David is rock bottom. Rock bottom. Rejected by enemies, rejected by friends, rejected by employees, employers. Now he comes home discouraged, downtrodden, And he sees smoke over the horizon rising from his home. How many know whenever you see smoke rising anywhere, there's trouble? He gets closer and he sees there's a lot of smoke, smoldering ashes. There's not houses anymore, there's piles of ash. There's nothing left. It reminds me of the scene in that great movie, The Patriot, when uh, the Ben that guy, the, the militia leader, Benjamin. Uh, Mel Gibson's character comes back to the hometown and they just see the church has been burned down, but the guy put the people in the church before he burned it down. Only in this case, in David's case, at least the one solace of this story is that they haven't killed the women and children, at least not yet, they've taken them captive. It says in verse two, they killed no one, but they carried him off. And when David came to the city, he found it burned with fire and his wives and sons had been taken Captive. I say, I show you that passage because you have to understand the aim, the goal of our enemy, and I want you to write it down in your notes, is this, the aim of our enemy is the captivity of our families. He wants us enslaved to the spirits of this age, of the lusts of this age, of the, of the pride of this age. He wants us captive to what this age tells us is right. See, Jesus comes to set us free, and that's because we don't even realize that we are already many times in captivity to the spirits, to the mantras of our age. And if we're going to get free, we have to learn the tactics of the enemy who tempts us into slavery. You know, I've told you this, that I have two boxer dogs. If anybody wants them, see me after service. I have a love-hate relationship with these two dogs. I love them with all my heart and I can't stand the fact that I got them. Now I am a strict human parent, but I am the worst dog parent alive. I am so lackadaisical, I am so soft on these two dogs. My wife insists on having them sleep in prison. You may call them a crate, but I see the bars. I've been to prisons. That's a prison. I can't bring myself to putting these precious little animals into prisons all night. But Cheryl makes me do it. My favorite part of the night is when we're sleeping on the couch. Not sleeping. I'm watching TV. They're sleeping all over me. The one great thing about dogs is in in the winter, if you let them sleep on you on the couch while you watch TV, it's like having two uh, electricity-free electric blankets. Come on, somebody. Just keeps you nice and snugly warm. Well, when 10 p.m. comes around and it's starting to head towards bedtime, it's time to put the dogs back in prison. So I hate doing it. I hate just yanking them in. I mean, Cheryl is just like, come on, go. But my compassion and my love for animals (laughs) keeps me from doing this. So I have come up with a technique, and we've got a little treat jar on the counter in our kitchen. And in the treat jar, Cheryl found these treats at Whole Foods. There are these little liver, I call them liver oyster crackers. Now this is an actual oyster cracker. But that is basically what this little treat that we give our dogs looks like. And what I do is I get up off the couch and I head over to the kitchen. And the dogs are so—they just so comfortable on the couch; they don't want to move. So what I do is I go into the kitchen and I—all I, I got to do is stick my hand into the thing and just—how many know where I'm going with this? And they just hear it and they're like, oh, oh, liver treats, and they just go jump off the couch. They come running over to me and I just let them sniff it in my hand, and then I walk over to the prisons, <laughs> and they just follow. And and I just open the door and they walk right in. And I got the train and I just toss, I toss the the little oyster cracker in and they just get in and then I shut the crate and I go to bed. And every time I do this, I think to myself, this is what the devil does with us. This is how it goes. Because nobody really ever sets out to have a terrible marriage. Nobody at the altar in front of their friends and family says, I can't wait to throw plates at your face. <laughs> right? Nobody does that. We don't set out to be drug addicts. We don't set out to commit adultery. We don't plan for this. What happens? How do we get in these prisons? Do you know how? Because the devil holds out the treat. And I'm always amazed at how this little treat takes, literally takes control of my 70 pound boxer dog. This treat, 70 pounds, no match, because his appetite for that little tiny treat, which he pretty much doesn't even taste. I put it in his mouth and he's like. Every <laughs> time <laughs> did you taste it? No, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's just such a short little treat. And he falls for it every single night. Do you understand that the devil is the master of treats? And he has treats assigned to you. My treats are not your treats, and your treats are not my treats. But he knows he's got a little bulletin board in hell with your name on it. Here's how you get Paul in North Otterboro. Here's how you get Sally in Foxborough. Here's how you do it. For Sally, all you gotta do is have her scrolling up on her Instagram feed, and all she has to see is that her neighbor got a brand new kitchen set. And she will be at the furniture store that afternoon charging a brand new kitchen set on her credit card, and she will be enslaved to credit card debt before you know it. All you gotta do for Paul is put a bikini-clad model in his face during a commercial, and before you know it, he's gonna be on the computer checking stuff out he shouldn't check out. All you gotta do for this young child is make him feel like he's a nobody at school for three successive days and then have the drug addict come and befriend him and offer him a taste. That's all it's gonna take, just a treat. And if we're not aware of this, if we don't realize it, if we don't learn how to fight, we will be taken captive and put in prison. By the enemy of our souls. And my Father in heaven and your Father in heaven does not want his children in prison. He came to set you and I free. Amen. But we have to fight through in the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God for our freedom. David was distressed, it says in verse 6. Do you know why? Because not only had he lost his friends and his family, not only had he lost his position in the kingdom, not only had he lost his uh, time with the Philistines, his safety in the Philistine camp, but now he's lost his family. His kids are gone, his wives are gone. And the Bible says in verse six, he was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul. Can you see what's happening to David? He is completely and utterly alone. Even his right-hand men are like, this guy's gotten into this mess and we gotta kill him. Have you ever been there? Have you ever gotten to the place where there's nobody that you can talk to? Because it just seems like you're completely alone in the fight for your life, in the fight for your family, maybe even in the fight for your marriage. Haven't you been there? You're gonna be there at some point. So if you haven't been there yet, make sure you jot down these notes carefully because you'll get there. You will get there as a married partner because there's gonna be times in your marriage where it's gonna feel like you're the only one willing to fight for the marriage. There's gonna be times when you're gonna think you're the only one that cares about what these kids become. There's gonna be times when you're gonna think, young person, when everybody at school and everybody even at church doesn't give a rip about you. And if you let that overcome you, if you let that be your reality, and you don't do anything, and you don't step up, and you don't fight back, you are a sitting duck for the prisons that the devil has prepared. What does David do when everybody around him has turned on him? I love the last half of verse six. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Oh, that's a great verse. You got to underline that. You got to circle it. You got to make sure you mark that up in your Bible. If you have your Bible, if you got your iPhone app, you got to highlight that. And you gotta remind yourself of this tactic so that when the devil makes you feel like you are completely alone in the fight for your life, in the fight for your family, that you are not without options. You still have someone on your side who you can turn to. So I wanna teach you how to fight, David style. If we're gonna fight for our families, point number one, we need to self-strengthen. You have to learn, Christian, how to self-strengthen. Because there's not always going to be another Christian that will encourage you. There's not always going to be a pastor who will teach you. There's not always going to be a mentor who will be there for you. There's not always going to be somebody that you can call that can pray for you through the trouble. You're going to have to learn how to self-strengthen. Do you know how to self-strengthen? David strengthened himself. I got three letters under point one because this is how you self-strengthen. Letter A, I must take personal responsibility for my spiritual life. I must take personal responsibility for my spiritual life. It is not up to someone else to make me strong in the Lord. That's up to me. I can make me strong. I can make me mighty in battle. Why? Because the Lord is with me. Strengthens himself. So how do I strengthen myself, pastor? Pray. Pray. Prayer works, my friends. Say, I don't know how to pray. Just try talking to God. Go to the Psalms where David is pouring out his heart and just read back to the God the Psalms in your position because you'll relate well to what he went through because you've been there and he's been there and he gave you words. You just gotta pray. You just gotta pour out your soul. Pour out your heart to God. It's okay. Do you know that you're never gonna shock God if you tell him what you're what you're mad about? He kind of knows everything. So you say, God, this marriage is ticking me off. He's not gonna say, "What? I had no idea." You look so happy on the outside. <laughs> he knows. Jesus said, "Your father already knows what you need before you ask him." So ask. See, you got both. You got a prayer in your life. I, I read this article about the benefits of prayer from a non-Christian source, a non-Christian source that talks about the seven benefits. Proven benefits scientifically of prayer. Number one, it improves self-control. You know that you get mental fatigued. This is how we lose self-control, and make stupid decisions. We get mental fatigued. Do you know when you suffer the most mental fatigue after a long day at work? This is why you can be at each other's throats at the end of the day, because you've just suffered through a long day. You got mental fatigue. If you pray, if you stop and you pray, it says that a German study found that prayer can counteract mental fatigue and boost your self-control. Number two, it enhances our relationships. Praying for someone, praying with someone, creates a bond of friendship that strengthens our relationships. Number three, it improves ability to cope with stress. You ever have a moment where you're just about to lose it? Or have you ever lost it? Anybody here other than me ever just lost it? 17 truthful people in this building. Okay, I'm talking to those people, I guess. The other day I was driving in my car. Hmm. I have this problem. My name is Tim. And I check my Christianity at the door of my car. And I'm driving and there's a guy on the highway and he's in the fast lane driving slow. There's gotta be a Bible verse about this somewhere. And you know that when they finally pull over, you are required by law to flash them to look. You know that this is you're doing the community a service. You go around and you got a flash look, and you just got to throw the hand up. You're gonna be like, get in the slow lane. It's it's wide open. It was made for you. So the other day, I'm in the fast lane, in a slow person, and I'm, I'm I'm losing it. I am Christian swearing this person up and down. You know Christian swears, right? What the heck? I'm sick of this shoot. What the flip is wrong with this guy? Son of a biscuit. You know we do this. Oh, well, we don't say the real words. It's kind of effective. Just call, and, and suddenly the Lord, I, this, I don't know, this doesn't often happen, but it happened this time. And the Lord just said, hey, Why are you cursing out my image? Shoot. (laughs) And I said, oh yeah, yeah, right. I stopped myself and I just prayed. And I prayed for the person. Lord Jesus, help them to learn how to drive in a slow lane. (laughs) But can I tell you that peace, I'm not kidding you, just praying. Peace just came over me. Now, please don't think I'm some kind of hero. This was one time out of like 400 times this past year. <laughs> but it does work, it improves your ability to cope with stress. Number four prayer turns on disease fighting genes. A Harvard Medical School study found that people who practice prayer meditation actually had stronger immune systems as a result kicks in the genes that fight your diseases. Number five, it combats depression. Prayer increases dopamine, the the happiness hormone, in the brain. Number six, it helps control pain. A Bowling Green University study found that spiritual meditation of prayer or prayer helped reduce the number of headaches practitioners experience. Number seven, I'll put these on my blog. You can read them later. Number seven, promotes longer life. A A journal... A study published in the Journal of Gerontology pulled 4,000 senior citizens and found that those who prayed regularly coped better with illness and lived longer and stronger than those who did not. Prayer works. You have to learn to self-strengthen. Letter B, I must have personal connection with God. Please underline the word his in the text. David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. I have a question for you. Is Jesus your Savior? Because I'm not really interested if you know a couple of Christians. I want to know about you. What do you say about Jesus? Is he a good teacher? You can't leave him there because he made some outrageous claims. Like, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have life. Like, I am the way, the truth, and life. You can't come to the Father except through me. He said that. You can't leave him a good teacher. He doesn't allow it. He didn't want to allow it. Do you have a personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, you can have one by simply receiving him. And then you have partnership with God, relationship with the Lord of glory and the God of the universe. And I don't know what your questions are that's keeping you from a personal relationship with God. I don't know what it is. I don't know I don't know what your argument with God is. You might have a problem with starving people in Africa. You might have a problem with the fact that not everybody has heard about Jesus. And so how could it be God be just? And there are answers to all those questions. But please, please, please stop just throwing up questions as a wall of defense against something that could be the greatest blessing that could ever come into your life, a personal relationship with the living God of the universe who loves you and gave his son to die for you. I always have questions. It's okay. It's about faith in spite of some of the questions. And so I have to have a personal connection with God. Number, letter C. I must practice personal petition for God's direction. Ask God what he wants you to do. Now, to ask God what he wants you to do and this is what David says to Abiathar. He says, bring me the ephod. The ephod was a, a garment in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant for the priest, with two little like ancient dice stones in it. And they would roll the dice, ask, questions, ask a yes or no question of God, and then they would roll the dice and find out God's direction. Now, we don't do that anymore because we have the Holy Spirit who leads us. But in the ancient world, that's what they did. So David says, I need some direction from God. Give me the ephod. My question to you is, in your fight for your family, are you asking God for what you should do? Because I get a lot of people asking me, how can they make their spouse do what they should do? <laughs> On a Deep End podcast, my question the questions were coming in. How can I make my husband lead me? Do you understand that if I give you the answer and you actually make him lead you, you are actually now the leader? Right? If you make your husband lead you, who's the leader? You're the leader. You can't make him lead you. You can ask God to make you the wife he needs you to be so that he will lead. How can I make my wife submit? Good luck. (laughs) You can ask God to make you the husband that she will love to submit to how can I make my children obey? You can ask God to make you a father or a mother who teaches your children with wisdom and godliness and unassailable logic because it comes from heaven so that their arguments will cease. How many believe that would be a good day? Hallelujah. Right? God wants to give you wisdom. He wants to give you wisdom so bad he had Jesus' older brother, I mean, younger brother James, say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives graciously without finding fault, and wisdom will be given him. All you gotta do is ask. And it'll happen. But you gotta make it personal. What do you want me to do? Now, letter number two, and the big points is this if we're gonna fight for our families, we need to listen to God over the opinion of our culture. Some of you are so indoctrinated by this present culture, you don't even realize it. When God says something about male and female, when God says something about sex, when God says something about relationships, when God says something about purity, when God says something about cohabitation or fornication or immorality or morality, start listening to him over culture. Because listen, culture does not care about you. And culture's constantly changing. You ever notice how now we want to rip down the statues of men who are long dead? In our culture, why? Because now we have determined all our sacred wisdom that we're smarter than those people from 200 years ago. Well, good for you. But you benefited from their wisdom to get where you are. What absolute chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis liked to call it. Because there's going to be some day, there's going to be 200 years from now, there's going to be some kid thinking, you're an idiot. Culture's always changing. Culture's always shifting. It's shifting sands. And if you build your house on the sand... When the storms come, you will collapse. There is something called the inalterable, inerrant, unchangeable, eternal truth of God. Are you tethered to that? Because when the storms come against you in that, you're on the solid rock, baby, and no force of hell will be able to upend you from the truth that God has planted in you. This is what David had to do. David inquired to the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And God says in verse 8, yes, fight. I love verse 8 because God is like, yes, fight. Do you want me to fight for my family? Yes. Pastor Tim, do you think it's really serious that I pray? Yes. Do you think I really need to do this? Yes. Yeah. Do you think I need to come to church every week? Yes. Do you think I need to get a small group? Yes. Fight. And this is the difference, by the way, between Saul and David. Saul lost the kingdom. Why? Do you know why? Because when he was at wit's end, he feared people's opinions. In fir- in, but way back in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, way back, before David, before Goliath, before anything, Saul's the first king of Israel, and in the first battle, Samuel says, I'm coming, wait seven days, I'll come, I'll offer the offering, and then you can go to battle. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel thirteen eight, Saul waited seven days, and Samuel did not come. And look at this. Look at this line. Check it out. And the people were scattering from him. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the offering and I'll offer it. And he wasn't allowed to by law, as he king, to offer the offering. Okay? And he does. Why? What was the impetus behind that disobedience? The people. He was worried about what the people thought. And if you spend your life worrying about what people think, you'll forever be chasing unpleasable people. See, I want you to write this down in your notes so you have it to take home with you. Saul feared people, and it led to personal loss. David feared God, and it led to personal victory. Who are you tethered to? What crowd has your ear? I think about how the devil is so good at indoctrination. I think about a young girl named Ariana Grande. I mean, this is an image of God bearing beautiful, Woman that the industry has basically taken, repackaged, sold her as a soft porn sex slave, so that 12 and 13 year old girls will fall for the image they've created. And I go on her Twitter feed, because that's how I study the Bible, and I see young 12 year old girls asking, When's the right time to have sex? And she answers them. And I think about how many of you parents are completely unaware of who your children are listening to. Check the lyrics. Check the lyrics, please. Yes, ruin their lives. They'll thank you for it later. It's okay. It's it's the opinions of our culture. And the devil does not come out and say, here's a cage, walk in it. He gets the treat, and he lulls us right into this unconscious willingness to submit to his plan of destruction. Number three, if we're going to fight for our families, we must be open. We must open our lives to the partners that God sends us. Now, you're not alone for long when you start to strengthen yourself in the Lord, your God. Because God will start to go to work for you and bring you partners. Somebody say partners. Do you got some partners? Because look what happens, okay? I told you we'd skip this passage when we read it. We're going to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's a little bit of reading, but bear with me. As David sets off to pursue after the Amalekites who ravaged his home, Look what it says in verse 10. David pursued he and 400 men. They found an Egyptian in the open country, brought him to David, and they gave him, look at the openness that they have to this man. They gave him bread, they gave him water, they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drinking water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong? Who are you and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to a, a Malachite. I work for the very people that just ravaged your homeland. And if David had been proud, and angry, and resentful, and bitter, and hostile, and impetuous, he would have taken out a sword at the moment he said I was a servant of an Amalekite, and he would have killed this guy. But he doesn't. So you got to use wisdom with the relationships around you. You be careful about burning too many bridges before you have an opportunity to find somebody who could be the best thing that could ever happen to you. And it says this, I'm a young man, I'm a servant of, the Amal- uh, of the Egypt. I'm an Egypt. I'm, I'm a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. He was left behind by the same people who ruined David's life. Partnerships are usually bound together through going through the same hell and finding each other on the other side. That's partnership. Do you got some partners who have been where you've been, who have heard what you've heard, who have seen what you've seen, who have wrestled with what you've wrestled with? Do you have some? Because if you open your heart, God will send them to you. And he says, "We we made a raid. We burned Ziklog with fire, verse 14. Skipping back down now to verse 15, and it says, and David said to him, will you take me down to this band? He said, just make sure you don't kill me and I will, and David does, and he goes and leads him right into the hands of his enemy. And this partner, this this partner was like a gift of God for David to find out where his family was and get them back, and I think about the fact that if he had not been open-hearted to this man, he would have missed out on inside information on what the enemy was doing against his life. This is why I tell you from this stage repeatedly that at some point you have to stop looking at me and looking at each other and start looking at each other. We have a saying, we stole it from another church, so don't give us credit. Circles are better than rows. Looking at me is great, but I want you to get out of looking at me only and start looking at each other and talk it out and work it out and open your life to partners, small groups. Open your heart to people who love Jesus. There are so many Christians that are struggling in needless ways because they think they've got to do it on their own. It's America, we're the land of the free, independent. <laughs> no, you're not. You'll follow somebody, you'll let somebody else lead you. Get some God fearers in your life, my man. Get some God fearers in your life, young lady. Get some God fearers speaking into you and loving you in Christ. Because guess what they have? They might have inside information on how to finally beat that enemy once and for all. Ecclesiastes 4:9 says, Two are better than one, for they help each other succeed. If one falls down, the other one can reach down and pick him up. But the person who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two. People lying close together can keep warm, but how can someone keep warm alone? Verse 12, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two people back-to-back stand and conquer. Three are even better. A triple-branded cord is not easily broken. The New Testament abounds with this term, one another's. It abounds with this term. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ. 2 Corinthians three thirteen eleven: comfort one another, agree with one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. Forgiving one another. Colossians 3.16, teach one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another. Can I just ask you one last question? Do you have some one another's in your life? You want to fight well? Open your life to the partners God gives you. When I started this church 15 years ago, the very first thing that I did was I went to all the churches in the area and I said, I'm starting a church. It's named Waters Church. I want to just meet you. I'm a pastor. I don't want to be your enemy. I want to be your friend. We formed a small group ourselves. It has been the life-giving small group of the last 15 years. I have heard of authors I never would have heard about. I have read books I never would have read. I have heard of ideas and topics and talked out problems and struggles in ministry that I would never have been able to do with any one of you because unless you're here, you just don't get it and they get it and they speak to me and I speak to them and they help me and because of them, I am the man that I am today and it brings strength to my life in my fight for the enemy. Fight against the enemy. Do, yeah, do you have, do you have some partners? Now, the story is a lesson for what we should do, but it's also a story pointing to someone else you see David is a mighty man who led Israel back into battle and won back for the men their families got all those men's families back got all those people's families back we said he got it back all of it back not just his family but everybody's family because David in this mess in this passage is not just an example for us to follow he is also an illustration for who we should look to the true son of David, Centuries later, named Jesus. Who went into the enemy's camp, just like David. Who was rejected by his own people, just like David. Who went into hell and ripped from the devil the keys of hell and death and rose triumphantly on the third day and says to you and to me today, I have the keys of hell and death. And if you want to walk in light, you shall walk after me and you will never walk in darkness. I'll lead you out. I'll get back your family. I'll restore what the devil has stolen. Jesus is our true David who leads us into victory for the peace of our families. And I'm not asking you to be like David. I'm asking you to trust your true David, Jesus, who will strengthen you with the Holy Spirit and give you the power to fight.